First thing I want to say, I would like to thank Beyonce because every time she gives us a performance that's new music, a new thing, it's always over and above. We'll get more into that in the first movement. Second thing I want to do, I want to read a quote from Lady Gaga, who we honored a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah. And this is what Lady Gaga had to say concerning the Oscar. Uh, is it Oscars? Yeah, the Oscars mm-hmm. earlier this week. She says, and I quote here, there could be a hundred people in a room and 99 of them won't slap you, but one will. <laughs> if you are here to uh, <laughs> check our responses, our opinions, our, our further uh, thoughts on the slap heard around the world this week, you're in the right place. But we're going to get more into it <laughs> in, the, uh, in the first movement. I will, though. Get us started, Scott, by reading the definition of respectability politics. First first of all, is that a, a phrase or a concept you have any proximity, any uh, relationship with? Do you, do you know? I know the phrase just from hearing it, you know, being bounced around and all that sort of thing. As far as an actual definition or studied it as mm-hmm. a theory or something, nothing like that. All right. Well, I'm just going to read here. This is from the uh, Wikipedia. It says the term politics of respectability was first used in the context of black women and their efforts to distance themselves from the stereotypical and disrespected aspects of their communities. Respectability politics continues to influence the behavior of racially marginalized black individuals today who gain status and rights by, quote, adhering to hegemonic standards of what it means to be respectable. The development of afro American politics of respectability have been traced to writers and activists, including uh, Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, and has been used as a way of understanding the election and political trajectory of Barack Obama. You see, Wikipedia is messy. Mm. But but basically what we're talking about when we talk about respectability politics is moralities, morals, standards being placed on certain things, certain actions, uh, certain situations based on what what is expected of us as individuals in a society where right. these norms should be uh, adhered to or whatever. I really felt like, you know, we'll, 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 I'll just do a quick hit. Um, but, you know, before we dive in deeper later on, but where everyone everyone's talking about this Will Smith, you know, slapping Chris Rock incident. A lot of the discourse that I was seeing online really centered, in my opinion, the respectability politics of it all. Will Smith was not supposed to go up there and inflict harm because it's and, the Oscars. And, yeah. and that, or because whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like if you really, no matter how you answer that sentence, you're going back into those politics of respectability. Uh, I also have a problem with us demonizing physical violence to a greater degree than the emotional violence mm-hmm. that we saw inflicted on Jada Pinkett Smith. And I'm, I'm not here to say anyone was right or wrong. I have no commentary on the joke itself that he made. I'm just saying, I saw a lot of things centered that I wasn't centering in my response to all of this. Do you have a, a quick tape on a, a quick take on Will Smith slapping Chris Rock? There was one I read that I thought was pretty interesting that talked about his uh, Will Smith's privilege mm-hmm. to be able to, <laughs> on a live broadcast, walk up and assault someone and then go sit back down and the police aren't called right. or anything <laughs> right. like that. Um, 
Number two, Chris Rock has taken a hit before. You can tell. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. We, we, we shout, round of shout applause to Chris, to Chris Rock. To Chris Rock. <laughs> he kept the and show he going, kept, and he kept right on. <laughs> he didn't swing back. It, it didn't turn into that. You know. Yeah. Now let me tell you something else. I did not watch it in real time. I didn't see it during the the live broadcast. Yeah. I woke up and found out about it through social media the following morning. Sure. And when I saw the clip, I had no reaction. Mm-hmm. None. I I have hit a point. I don't know why. Where nothing that comes through the phone in my hand, the TV on the and cable, I knew you were, I, and I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I was thinking of you when I watched it. I was I, like, I'm just Scott, like, Scott's going to be unfazed. I'm. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a I'm in a simulation, mm-hmm. and you know, or or maybe I've already died, and this is my brain playing back all this kind of stuff, and I'm just sitting here watching the ride go. This is the good place, you know. Well, I don't. You know, we we watch Rick and Morty, so mm-hmm. the the so called. Uh, default universe is C-137, sure. I think. This is not C-137. We're not on C-137. Like, this no. isn't the regular timeline. No. <laughs> we, we, we've definitely veered off somewhere. So let me let me tell you that my, my first honest reaction, though, I immediately thought about you and the things that you have said about hair, in particular when we talk about certain athletes that had to cut theirs in the moment, right. you know, to be able to continue to compete right. and how traumatic that would be. So is it safe for me to assume that that would even be amped up further when we're talking about a black woman and her hair? Oh, absolutely. And I wasn't even, I, I hadn't yet thought about what you're thinking of, but yeah, if I was, so you're, you're, what you're recalling is, I think there was a wrestler right. who the referee was like, and he had locks and the referee was like, well, you know, you got to cut your hair. That's not regulation length. If you want to participate, da, da, da. So they were sitting there on the sideline cutting his hair. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine being that parent. I, w- I would have wanted to go down there and smack the shit out of somebody as well. Mm-hmm. You know? And again, this is not me condoning violence. If you want to call me a, uh, uh, accuse me of toxic masculinity because I say something like that. That's f- that's fine. I'm, I'm not judging you or or your perspective on anything, but I can understand where, to a degree where the emotions come from. You know, and and I, I hear it over and over again. I've experienced it. How so many people, as black people, especially black women can be wronged publicly, mm-hmm. but the apology or the support always comes through as an instant message or something behind right. the scenes, you know, but, mm-hmm. you know, what about standing up for black women in the moment? Mm-hmm. If we're going to uh, shit on, well, excuse my, my French so early in the opus, but if, if, if we're going to throw rocks at Will Smith for his reaction to what happened, Let's talk about what you think it would look like to stand up for Jada Pinkett Smith in the moment and not censuring the fact that he went up there and used his hand to deal with it. I I don't I'm not censuring either Will Smith or Chris Rock in this thing. I'm thinking about where Jada Pinkett Smith must have been in her mind in that room, in that predominantly white room. Everybody's laughing at you uh, after a joke that Mm -hmm. someone else makes about your ball head. Not to not to uh, even imagine the hours of tears or frustration at home behind the scenes all this stuff that and will saw it has yeah. a, a front row seat to we need to think about what it looks like for to stand up for people especially to stand up for black women in the moment how many times have uh we all 
been in a room where someone's name, yes, maybe a, a black woman's name is being mispronounced or butchered by someone or they're just kind of laughing about it or what, you know, um, or, you know, a black a, a black woman is being ignored, cut in line. And I, I'm, I'm basically, Scott, what I'm trying to get at is we I think all men have been guilty of not stepping up sure. right then and there. And I think that culture, that that historical culture plays a big role in this conversation. You know, there's a woman, I, I posted something on Facebook that I'm sure is up to 150 something comments at this point. Y'all can have it. But uh, one of the women who con uh, who uh, commented runs a, an opera company, a black woman who runs an opera company. I won't name her, even though it was on the public thing. Y'all can go look if you want. But basically her point was she has had to sit in so many rooms as the only black person, sometimes even the only woman and, you know, gets rocks thrown at her gas lit, uh, blamed on the, you know, and, you know, she spoke to how there's so many times where she wishes that there was, there was somebody there to have her back and to stand up for her right then and there in the moment. So mm -hmm. I'm not here to, um, condone Will Smith's actions. I'm not here to, can condemn, condemn it, it either. either, but we'll get more into into that in the first movement. Ba basically, my where my respectability jumped out, I was like, not not y'all sitting up here and acting up in front of Beyonce. Mm. <laughs> well, everybody has a limit, and yeah. you saw where Will's was, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> everybody can talk a good game about what they would do in exactly. that moment, exactly because you don't know, you don't know what it's like to feel that sort of humiliation for years. And then all of a sudden ha uh, face it in front of a multi-million viewership audience and your friends and colleagues in the room. I'm going to ask you this and then we're going <laughs> to move on. I'm thinking about the Dave Chappelle mm. incident mm -hmm. and folks who are angry at him for some of the jokes he made recently. If a trans woman or a trans man went up there to the stage after that joke and smacked him and walked off just like Will Smith did, do you think there would be as much outrage as we're seeing around Will Smith? Or would people be cheering on this I think person? They'd be cheering to, him okay, on. I'm just going to leave that there for, for y'all to think about. Hello, this is Triloquy <laughs> Opus of 144, I believe. And uh, we'll be out of women's, I think we'll be out of Women's History Month by the time this comes out. Oh, no, it'll be the last day. It's like, yep. Last day of Women's no, History the Month. the second to last, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I want to uh, spin this downbeat, celebrating uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, who we uh, spoke to briefly in last week's Triloquy. Basically, I was like, you know, can she make change? I'm, I'm thinking about the big picture. I just wanted to make it clear that this isn't me diminishing the, the historical nature of this moment. Uh, it's interesting how it takes 200 and something years to get a black woman up there. But here we are. And uh, the, the proceedings have been very telling, mm -hmm. <laughs> haven't they? Mm -hmm. What did you think of uh, Cory Booker's grandstanding, his speech? Um, he was he was ready to do it, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he, yeah, he, had, he came prepared. He, he had put that together. Um, I don't know how impressed I was. Despite, but, yeah. despite the delivery... <laughs> he, no, I, I'm talking yeah, about your yeah, your, your comment about his delivery. Despite that, uh, he didn't say anything that was incorrect. 
Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with anything that what Cory Booker said, but right. I was listening. Uh, I was in an Uber, actually, when it, w- it was live. I was like, oh, will you just stop yelling at me? Like, was, first of all, we're all right here. We can hear you. <laughs> I was more disappointed with some of the other uh, lines of questions that came from some of the other people that were just low blows. I thought they were just... It, it just wasn't a very good. It wasn't a very good look for a lot of the people that were asking her questions. In my mind, well, we'll let the people decide. We're yeah. gonna we're gonna hear uh, a little bit of uh, what was going on up there on Capitol Hill. This is an excerpt from Ted Cruz's questioning to Katanji yeah. This was one of the guys. Jackson. Let's take a listen. Now, this is a book that is taught at Georgetown Day School mm-hmm. to students in pre-K through second grade, so four through seven years old. Um. Do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that that babies are racist? Senator. I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. But what I will say is that when you asked me whether or not this was taught in schools, critical race theory, my understanding is that critical race theory as an academic theory is taught in law schools. And to the extent that you were asking the question, I understood you to be addressing public schools. Georgetown Day School, just like the religious school that Justice Barrett was on the board of, is a private school. Okay, so, so you agree critical race theory is taught at Georgetown Day School? I don't know because well, we'll we'll go ahead and and leave it there. So Scott, let me let, let, let's just let's let's dig in. Let me ask you: mm. Do you believe babies are racist? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> what I is don't. the what? It, from your perspective, what was Ted Cruz really? asking Katanji Brown here you know what what was what was really happening Katanji Brown Jackson what what was he really getting at do actually? you think i have a shot at being president in 2024 <laughs> oh so you think it's some grandstanding for the for there's the republican pictures, side there, of there's it there's pictures or... of him checking his social media after that Oh my goodness. Line of questioning oh my goodness that you know that so, that that sigh and pause you Just could park a beer truck in there. Yeah. <laughs> what did you hear in that long pause? <laughs> you know, that definite silence. <laughs> Please, what did you hear Lord, keep me from walking up and slapping this man. Listen. <laughs> 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 but of course, a black woman can't, you know, we were talking about the privilege of Will Smith. Of yeah. course, a black woman can't go do that. They'd have definitely had her in jail and, and or, or the whatever they do up there for, yeah. for that sort of situation. But, you know, I think the point... <laughs> Let me take up for the book first. I think the point that Ibram X. Kendi is making in these children's books is that racism or, as as Ted Cruz said there, racism or anti-racism, both of those things are taught. There's no neutrality in all of our actions, in the way we move. There is some status quo being put on kids. Neither of us have children, mm-hmm. but, what do you, but, but what are your... What are your thoughts on that? Do, do you agree yeah, I with, think it's taught. with what Ibram X. Kendi is saying? No, I, I, I 100% think that it is something that is taught. For example, and uh, let's, here's an example of how 
anti-racism can be taught. Sure. When I first heard the N-word, I was seven or eight years old. And I heard it over at the neighbor's house. Because I was going to ask you, where did you hear it? <laughs> over, over at a neighbor's house. Okay. And I came home and I asked my mom what that meant. And she said, no. And I said, but really, but no. All I want to know, no. So she told me right away, she got her message across that I was not to use that word. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until later that her and my father came back around and told me why. Yeah. Okay. So there is an example of teaching anti-racism, and right. I learned, and I learned better, I think, from my mom's first reaction of uh, of the severity of the issue. Right. Just from her stern no that got incrementally louder as I kept trying to say, well, really, all I'm, you know, he said it, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to, and and now that I'm thinking about it too, I can remember his dad using the word. And my dad saying, "Hey, watch your mouth around my kid." Mm, so your your dad was was ready to slap somebody, I guess. <laughs> he did other things that deserved a slap, but <laughs> your dad or the neighbor? The neighbor. Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, anyway, historic moment. It's it's going to be something that's uh, in the history books in the coming years. Katanji Brown Jackson being the first black woman appointed to the Supreme Court. Scott, I have issues with that structure, I think the mm -hmm. people to some degree should be involved in a branch of the government where you can be appointed to a lifetime position that is at the end of the day, equal to the executive branch and, and to the legislative branch, all the senators and, mm -hmm. and Congress people. And, you know, two things can be true at the same time. And I'm happy that this barrier has been broken. I hope that in the coming years, there's some impact that Katanji Brown Jackson can have because I understand she's replacing a, a liberal judge anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the numbers are shifting, but I don't know. It's just, it, I think it's really just been a masterclass, these hearings in gaslighting and grandstanding on both sides. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, just really trying somebody, asking questions that really are neither here nor there. Why are we really talking about children's books and a private school mm -hmm. when that is, you know, uh, I feel like on the converse of that, Ted Cruz would be like, well, it's a private school and they have the right to teach whatever if it was something that he that thought he, was uh -huh. was okay. But 100%. We, we, we need to all send our energy and our uh, positive thoughts to Katanji Brown Jackson and we need to stand up for her in the moment. I'm sure. None of us, few of us will ever be in a room where we need to stand up and say, hey, you watch your mouth around da -da, you mm. know, or, or whatever. Mm. But in our discourse, uh, when we hear people talking about Katanji Brown Jackson, when we hear all of these things, we, we have to say something if we hear something problematic. We're going to get a little bit into the usefulness of call out culture in the third movement. Jamie Alilaw comes back for uh, part two. But my my mind and my thoughts are everywhere when it comes to you know supporting Jada Pinkett Smith, supporting Katanji Brown Jackson. But I am going to be more intentional about stepping forward and really standing up for folks in the moment, thinking about both these situations. And I hope everyone else is as well. But you know, to to a bigger point that's uh, being explored uh, in that excerpt we just listened to, 
we we all have something that we grew into or grew out of. Again, Ibram X. Kendi and talking about the non-neutrality of raising kids, how racism or anti-racism is uh, being taught. This is not about guilt. It's not about making someone feel bad. I'm so tired of having that corner of the conversation because white guilt is not pleasing to anyone or useful at the end of the day for anything. It's all about us learning and growing and moving forward. We can do that in our lives. We can certainly do it in music. That's what we're trying to do here on this podcast. Let's get into it. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy, Opus 144. Thank you so much for tuning in to returning listeners. Thank you for coming back and continuing to support this project and this effort to decolonize classical music. If you're a new listener, if this is your first time listening to the Triloquy podcast, welcome. The phrase classical music has been conditioned on us as a culture and an aesthetic rooted in Western Europe. This podcast creates proximity between the conversations that aren't always put into proximity with so-called classical music, musical aesthetics, uh, and, and all sorts of things, all toward making the phrase classical music something that is closer to the rest of our lives and what's relevant for us here in this 21st century. For more information on the Triloquy podcast and to find out how you can contribute to the Triloquy podcast, also to to check out past opuses, please visit Triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Springboard for the Arts. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. I also want to send a shout out to the Brookings Arts Council. Once again, Scott, it was something seeing all that open plain mm-hmm. over in uh, South Dakota. Uh, nice to get out of town and take a nice long car ride and and really encouraging for me to engage both adults and students. So I spoke at the art museum and I went over to the school, uh, South Dakota State University uh, the next day uh, to talk about what I'm trying to do Mm, in my life and my career and what we're doing here on this podcast. There are a lot of people who are really engaged and excited about a renewed idea surrounding that phrase, classical music. I tend to lean on aesthetics of music that we affirm as Black today, you know, the soul, the gospel, the R&B, the jazz, the hip hop. But um, I think it's also important, especially when I'm in crowds over in South Dakota, to contextualize this conversation as it applies to country and to bluegrass and to folk Mm. as well. So that's what I was really trying to lean into, you know, musics that also have Black origins and music that we can affirm as American classical. So I'm I'm just so excited to you know, see this message really catching on in more places. I feel like in the next generation, we'll see more engagement of American classical music by arts institutions. At least I fucking hope so. You know, <laughs> you said that somebody in Washington, D.C., after hearing you speak, said that they they thought that you were going to bring some real smoke, that you were mm-hmm. going to be more. So did you did you bring the fire to I Brookings? Did. I did? did. And, you know, when and, and see, this is the thing when you're standing on the stage, I'm thinking about when I was speaking at the art museum, when you're standing on the stage and seeing, you know, all of these white people just staring at you mm-hmm. and not knowing what anybody is thinking. I'm like, all right, well, 
if y'all want to fight, at least let me <laughs> here, finish my presentation. Here it goes. <laughs> uh, but no, but but everyone was really uh, receptive. It was it was really great. It, it was a it was a great experience. I got a few NPR questions. There, there's some people that listen to the podcast, mm. and, they, and they're like, "So how do you feel now?" Mm. And of course, you know, everyone's waiting on me to just shit on the the organization. So I'm I'm being the good guy. And uh, I think I even quoted you. I was like, you know, my 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 friend and colleague Scott Blankenship says mountains are being moved, so they must be. Then <laughs> is that not what you said? It is. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, let me also uh, thank Represent Classical. I've recently wrote an article for them concerning the Emmett Till Opera that did have its premiere. Scott, though that petition, uh, all those thousands of signatures, over ten thousand signatures, didn't stop it from. Being premiered, so that happened. Uh, I wrote an article about it that I'll, I'll have in the description of this. Basically, my point was, it's another opera for the audience that's always been centered in opera spaces. So that that's my critique. This sort of thing of this highlighting of black trauma isn't for black people. And I think if we can lean into that aspect of it, mm-hmm. we can at least have a conversation. It happened. I'm not, you know, it's it's water under the bridge at this point. I'm sure it'll have more uh, performances. If you don't know what we're talking about, just go back to last week's uh, opus. But for me, the and, and maybe this could be a, a natural, just a pre-natural before we get into the first movement officially. But um, my my big takeaway is that it, it just centers the, the same audience and that's just what it is i hear you, you. know so we, we need to think about it in that way all right enough uh chit chat and let's go ahead and get into movement one All right, like I said, we will get into the Oscars and not just the slap heard around the world, but uh, many of the other things that are relevant to our conversations here. But before we do that, um, you have a a sharp for us. Talk to me. That's right. Uh, I found an article in TheGuardian.com called Older, Gifted, and Black. Come on, you better sing it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing my best. The British musicians get better with age. And I got very excited because... uh, a few opuses ago, I brought in an article about Awadaj and Pratt's new competition for uh, black artists. Mm-hmm. And one of the critiques that you had was the age range. Of right. It was um, 10 to 30. 10 to 35. 10 I to think. 35, I believe. Yeah. Right? And you said it was going to be some 11 year old would come in and kick everybody's ass. Basically, you know. Right. <laughs> but, so, but, 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 but still, my critique was there are artists who have never had a shot that are older than 35 and we need to not and so forget that's, about them. That's why I got excited just by the headline on this because it seemed to speak to that very idea yeah. that this idea, this uh, there's this, it talks about the cult of the next quote big thing often deflects attention from quote dated talent as it has hit full maturity. I detect a little bit of shade in their dated talent. Dated <laughs> talent. <laughs> Um, that's like extended right, technique. Right, right. Okay. So um, my question to you would be, uh, so here, really, the article just turned out to be giving some attention to some of these black artists who have been around for a while. You know, the, the Errol and so Wallen. Who, yeah, who are some of them? Uh, Errol and Wallen is on this list. Uh, Belize born, raised in London, and she is having a career. I yeah. mean, she's, oh, yeah. she is doing a whole bunch of work. And, I've included uh, Erilyn Wallen tracks in, in some of my radio programming that I've done 
uh, for people. And see, she brings up a good point that I wanted to bring to you. She said, having worked as a keyboard play- player in pop bands earlier in my career, I saw how many brilliant black artists were being signed up and then quickly spat back out. Yep. Your feedback, your thoughts yep. on that comment. Signed up and spit right back out because mm-hmm. the the space isn't one where a lot of people see themselves in. They don't uh, draw relevance between what's being taught, what's being engaged, and the rest of their lives. So why would they stick around? Mm. That you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've seen people engage uh, art spaces in, in that in that very way. Not only just art spaces, any spaces. And she also says the best thing about you know she's working as a freelance composer. She doesn't have a a record label. She said the best thing about my career currently is that my music is performed live several times a week and seems to connect with people of all ages and backgrounds. And that feeds into a conversation that we had about orchestras and classical radio mm-hmm. saying, come over here and give us a, give this music a try right. rather than going out to the audience and saying, this is programming for you. We, right. you know, we're, we're going to try to give you programming that speaks to your issues, your community, your tastes. That's one of the big things that I feel like performing arts institutions specifically, but but and, and also classical radio, we need to get away from the education and the teaching part of it. And, and not to say that it's harmful or a waste of time or or whatever. I, I loved uh teaching people things about history and music history through through the context of of those sorts of things. But we also need to remember that most of us listen to music to be engaged, to um, to feel something, to have some sort of connection. So if we're rooting it all in, oh, you have to learn about Beethoven and how he fell in love with this woman and da da blah, blah, all of that to frame the music, it can get tiring mm-hmm. after a while. I feel like exactly what you said, if we can encourage arts institutions to engage communities based on what they are engaged by, mm-hmm. we can draw the line away from those things if we want to. Well, you're in the space. You've uh, been engaged by hearing X and Y and Z. Here's this Rachmaninoff piano mm-hmm. concerto that maybe you can get something out of. But we, I think we have to center the things that are going to already that engage the audience as they come and not try to form them and shape them toward learning and being engaged by what the institutions are centering today. I think you made a good point too while we were um, uh, after dinner when we were listening to Nisi. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was her name? Denise. Denise Williams. Denise Williams, yep. right. So um, we, uh, I've done breaks before talking about how there had to have been artists around the ones that we hold up as you know the yeah. gold standard yeah. who were, if, if not writing better music, they were writing some of the same caliber right. because you talked about hearing Denise's voice and that was just Sunday at church. Yeah, she sounds beautiful. And I know a lot of black women who sound like right. that. So you know? there are artists that were working and composing and making music at the same time as the Beethovens and Mozarts and everything that didn't get any acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's uh, a good idea to take a look at this article from theguardian.com. Not only does it introduce you to Errol and Wallen and Rude, they put her age up there. I mean, I know, I know that <laughs> that's the, the point. I know this, the whole but... point of it is, but still, uh, you said you knew the the next one, Jean Toussaint, uh, a saxophonist. Yeah, a saxophonist. But uh, one of the people I want 
wanted to uh, shine a light on is uh, Carlene Anderson here, born in Texas, but based in Britain since the early 90s. She's quoted here as saying the entertainment industry shuns older women and particularly women of African descent due to advertising structures designed to steer appeal in a narrow direction. I think that speaks to when we had... um, Martha Wash, yeah. when we were uh, talking about Martha Wash, that's exactly why they were using her voice and not her image. Mm-hmm. I feel like the advertisement and, mm-hmm. and, and and that sort of thing. She goes on here to say, there are examples that defy these discriminatory short-sighted policies. The light at the end of the tunnel is much brighter than it used to be, but still much further away than it should be. So, you know, all, all in all, I think as we continue to talk about engaging new music, new composers, or new to us music, new to us mm-hmm. composers, we just can't forget about the fact that these racist uh, structures have impacted people beyond the the younglings like like me. You know, sure. there there are folks in their fifties and sixties who also need to have their right. flowers given to them while they're here. You know, if any of these people passed away, everyone would be going online and learning more and highlighting some of the music so they can you know speak to that. But what and I said I actually said this in Washington D.C. at the Kennedy Center. You know, what if we had conversations and honored people and shifted our attention to things outside of trauma. You know, we right. we, st- we started talking about um, uh, Ukrainian composers and Ukrainian music when Russia invaded. What if we were doing that before people were being right. displaced and turned into into refugees? So you know that that's my biggest takeaway. I think that we always need to. Uh, strive and make sure we're giving the famous and the not so famous uh, folks their flowers while they're here. It's not all for when you're gone mm-hmm. and dead, you know. Well, uh, that's a. Uh, th- I think that'll do it for that first accidental. The title of this is "Older, <laughs> Gifted, and Black." Of course, inspired by uh, the track "Young, Gifted, and Black." I, I understand that it's a, a Donny Hathaway track, or it was originally a Donny Hathaway track, but the one I know is Nina Simone. Right. That's the original for me. So let's listen to a little bit of that to get us into our next accidental, Young, Gifted, and Black, as performed by the one and only Nina Simone. Oh, what a lovely, precious dream. It's important to remember, again, it it might seem a little disconnected to have, you know, young, gifted and black musically, uh, but then at the same time talking about folks who are a little older. But I feel like the fortitude that these older black artists have today is rooted in what they experienced when they were younger, when Mm -hmm. it comes to someone affirming them, Mm -hmm. you know, there had to, it's a tragedy that there had to be a song where young black people are being affirmed and celebrated 
for being just that. That means in other parts of the world, they were not being celebrated and affirmed. So this piece of music was sort of that pep rally to make sure that they stayed the course and really acknowledged how beautiful it is to be who you are. So these folks, you know, who were listening to this music, uh, pieces of music like that in time, you know, that definitely has an impact mm. on, uh, I believe, on uh, their ability to to stay the course. So uh, again, I hope y'all will go and check out uh, that article. Shout out to everyone featured. And we're going to move on here uh, to my accidental. I'm going to give a sharp to the uh, to the Oscars. I, I, I planned on, yeah. this is the thing. I planned on not watching, caring, paying attention at all because I was like, oh, it's the Oscars, Hollywood. It's folks out here struggling to pay gas and I need to care about what they're doing. No, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. But they sure had a way of making sure that we... Are, are paid a, paid attention to talk about it to some degree. So I guess shout out to the Oscars. I know somebody over in uh, whatever department that makes sure that as many people as possible are watching or talking about it. You know, that slap her around the world, I'm sure, was <laughs> music to their ears, you know, for the younger generation, especially to be uh, paying attention. You know, while, while I'm thinking about it, you know. You're not suggesting it was planned, are you? No, no, only because... I saw the footage that was airing internationally where they didn't cut the audio. Cause you know, here they cut the audio. Cause he kept hollering, didn't he? Right. Yeah. Uh, said, you know, keep Jada, uh, Jada's, uh, my wife's mouth out your, uh, your name out of my, out of your fucking mouth mm-hmm. and all. Anyway, who something, some, something else. Like, like I said, doing all that cutting up right there in front of Beyonce. How dare they? <laughs> uh, but, but th- there are other things to talk about before we get into that. So I just want to uh, give a, a couple uh, quick shout outs to, uh, some of, these awards. So the winner for best animated feature was the film Encanto. Um, you already said that you didn't watch that, but uh, none of and, them that were and, and it's and it's hard to get me in front of an animated feature. I'll I'll just you know Dell is good about watching the animated movies, but we sat down in front of this, and one of the most beautiful things about it for me is that it displayed. Um, a culture that has not always been centered on screen. I think they were uh, Colombian. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I think it uh, took place in Colombia, but it showed Colombian people with uh, who were black, Colombian redheads, people fair skinned You know, so it just really highlighted diversity in a really matter of fact way. And I think it's important for that not only to be seen, but for it to be normalized, you know, there, there's a there's a difference uh, but be, between those things, and I feel like the diversity of a culture was really normalized in the film, and and that was beautiful. You know, that that movie is also. Um, you know, having impacts other places. My hairstylist, uh, shout out to Jenny. She said uh, her favorite drag brunch spot was doing an Encanto drag brunch. So it's like you go to brunch on Sunday mornings and it's themed. So if there's a Beyonce one, you have drag queens dressed like Beyonce performing all different Beyonce songs or Lizzo or Rihanna. You know, they have these different themed ones. Well, they had one that was themed around Encanto and she took her kids and she said (laughs) they had a phenomenal time, you know, singing along with the songs and everything. So, you know, this animated feature is, uh, you know, Bringing, bringing families together, introducing all of the families to all of the mothers out there, <laughs> so to speak. So shout out to uh, in Encanto. Go check that out if you haven't. I want to uh, move on to Best Original Score. This was won by Hans Zimmer. And as much as we say his name, Scott, in certain uh, classical spaces, it seemed like he would have won more Academy Awards by now. But I think this one uh, that he won for the movie Dune was only his second 
as mm. I as I found online. The, right. o- the other one was for uh, Lion King. When you when you hear the name Hans Zimmer, what do you what do you think about? Is there a specific piece of music or soundtrack or or anything? Do you play much Hans Zimmer on the radio? Not really. No, and I'm not entirely sure that I could uh, name more than a, a handful of his movies. And I understand from music social media, okay, that he runs the equivalent of a like a music shop, okay, like multiple people work on the piece, and it's like also oh, he got ghostwriters, a what Hans Zimmer reco- uh, production oh. or something like that, <laughs> a Hans Zimmer joint, even right. though it's a whole bunch right. of people working on it. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me of Thomas Kincaid, you know, that painter of light. And, oh, sure. And he would work on paintings in various stages. And depending on how much work he did, the value would go up. Mm-hmm. So then people point to it. It's not really art. It's about marketing. And I've heard people lay that at Hans Zimmer's feet as well. What do you think? So the, so the composer circles that you've been in on online or, or have uh, bear witness they to have, they aren't they necessarily have, celebrating. They have him, opinions. <laughs> they have opinions. Uh, indeed. Well, uh, uh, and among them being what? <laughs> um, all right, I'll share one. I'll share one that went. We're getting people, getting people in trouble I'm not, here. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say his name, but it's a great tweet. It went, blah, Culturally appropriative choral music. Blah. <laughs> That's how they describe it, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Wow. So, mm, um, somebody won't smoke. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, you know I'd go back to uh, the gent who recorded. Uh, the film music for, or the music for The Mandalorian and um, yeah, that's Boba uh, Fett. Ludwig Göransson. Yeah, that's now that's some. You say now that's a composer. Uh, now I can get behind that, <laughs> right? Anyway, well, shout out to Hans Zimmer. I, I, I didn't see Dune. Maybe I'll watch it. I've, I've heard mixed things about uh, the film, but so uh, we we move on to best original song, um, one by Billie Eilish and uh, Mr. O'Connor, but. I don't I don't really care about that as as much because Beyonce was nominated <laughs> in the category and her performance um of the song that she was nominated for Be Alive from the soundtrack uh, to the movie King Richard you know it's about uh Venus and Serena Williams and uh their dad and their come up and all of that I mean if Beyonce is always going to give you a performance we watched it before mm-hmm. we uh cut on cut on the microphones Scott I need to figure out what camera filter she uses first I'm and foremost saying. <laughs> because I'm be- saying. because Beyonce is going the the footage itself is always going to look brilliant right <laughs> she she glistens and glimmers and twinkles and everything the 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 whole she, so you know for folks who didn't see it she goes over to Compton California takes the tennis court that Venus and Serena trained on as children turns everything tennis ball green I'm talking about the costumes the musical instruments uh, a, a number of the dancers and singers had beads in their hair a la Venus and, uh, mm-hmm. and Serena's early years in tennis and see Scott what people forget about we were talking about hair in the crown act last week they were really giving the sisters a hard time back in the day about those beads, the referees and and all of those folks. Really? See, people don't like you have to have black hair or be in uh in uh, proximity to black hair to really remember, you know, and and to and to dig into the the struggle that we have all had in mm. some way when it just comes to the way our hair fucking grows out of our head. Mm. You know, imagine it. But anyway, so Beyonce flips that around and is celebrating that aesthetic. You had an affirmation of exactly what I'm talking about, Scott, when we talk about American classical in the performance. She um 
tips a hat musically to Tupac and you know uh his his music that celebrates Compton and and Southern California but that's realized through the string playing um speaking of the string shout out to uh Lady Jess yeah. member of the uh Triloquy family once again performing with Beyonce she was actually in the uh, concert master seat just it's so important Scott at least for me for young musicians, young black musicians, to see grown-up black women on TV playing violins and playing violins in a setting that's relevant to them or or offers something positive and non-colonial mm. for them to aspire to. I think that's so important. And um, I wish more artists would understand that, would, would take the opportunity, as Beyonce does, to highlight the diversity of black musical ability through these performance toward performances toward affirming more people. I, mm. I, that, that that is something that I don't think should be taken for granted, and I think something that is uh, really intentional about what Beyonce brings to um, uh, the field. So let, let's let's take a, a quick little breather here and listen to a little bit of this track. This is uh, a bit from the uh, performance at the Academy Awards "Be Alive" by the one and only Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter. y'all watch the rest of that i mean but again let me let me just repeat myself scott these camera filters i mean yeah do you think I that's mean, on the super, new iphone I, I don't feel like we can have we i don't think we have that. <laughs> we don't have access to that mm. <laughs> um that, that you know that orchestral introduction that we listen to scott we talked about this before we cut on the mics and i know that we we rehash this almost every week but there's really no reason for that aesthetic to not be making it into art spaces into spaces like classical radio this is where where i've come when it comes to the classical radio programming i believe that the music as 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 it exists deserves a spot on those platforms a compromise that I would be willing to make is some sort of instrumental transcription of some of these so-called pop tunes for the radio, but at least once an hour. Mm. You know, what if once an hour we heard a piano and violin or a piano and cello version or whatever of a Rihanna track, a Beyonce track, a um, in any in anybody, some you know, some of your favorite artists that you can stand over on a uh, on a uh, on a break, you know, I, I I think maybe that could be a a way in. What what do you think about that? Just an an edict of some sort that said once an hour on classical radio, the listeners will hear a transcription of something that they more likely than not already know or are familiar with or a firm and age or a time outside of the aesthetics of Western classical music? what do you think? Question. Did my shoes come off in the plane wreck? Okay. No, no. My question, my question is, do we have the recordings? I think that's a part of the work, right? Right. Col cultivating the recordings, finding the recordings, commissioning the recordings. 
you have a chance because then that goes back to what we were talking about before in my accidental of going to the audience right. with music that speaks to them right, and showing them how cool it is that it's in this classic vein. Yeah. Rather than going, here is a Corelli concerto because grosso. Because who gives a damn? About- <laughs> Who really cares? Who really I'm, cares? I'm in 2022. Sh- I'm sure that there is a Corelli stan out there somewhere. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're tuned in right now. <laughs> oh, definitely I, not. I, I don't yeah, if know. If you stan Corelli and you're listening to this- <laughs> um, Shout out to you. (laughs) (laughs) All I'm saying is, is that is one way. That is a step in the direction to appealing to the audience. Some say that they would like to have. So you have an idea of the types of things that I would, again, I'll repeat myself. I believe that the tracks as we know them, the, uh, the, the Lady Gaga, Beyonce, all this stuff as they exist, deserve space on there but when it comes to the transcriptions that i would find I'm, I'm sure you have an idea what what would be some examples of you know some four five six minute tracks transcribed transposed onto the western classical instruments that you would be excited to highlight on classical radio does any artist or what's anything the come name, to mind what's the name of the guy on youtube that just shows his hands Oh, uh, the theorist, and the he's theor- and he's shown his face so, because oh, has he, he? he collaborates with different cellists and stuff. But yeah, I think those recordings are incredible. They're really well done. I think that they would fly. And uh, what a great way to uh, not only reach out to that community you're trying to hit, mm-hmm. but also show the audience that you've got what what more is out there. What else could be? I think it's let, a good let, idea. Let's talk about the audience you got. So I'm thinking about the prototypical 57-year-old person driving home from work, maybe cutting on the classical radio station in the evening. From your perspective, as someone in that general uh, demographic, how would you approach engaging them in that way through renewed programming hmm. who are who are the who are the artists that you would be excited personally i, I keep forgetting them of uh, the name of, of this country singer uh isbel jason is jason Isbell. I, i'm sure there are some beautiful songs that could be translated to solo piano or cello and harp or whatever you know there, there's uh, i guess what i'm saying is digging hmm. into not only the the top 40 but some of the songs that folks just know that are, are beautiful compositions. You put out a tweet that I had you learning a Motley Crue song after mm-hmm. watching Peacemaker because he starts playing the piano and I'm not sure how many people caught it, but right away I started singing Home Sweet Home. Yeah, and I had no idea. I had right. never heard that too. Right. And as I was listening to it on YouTube, the next one was a gentleman, a country artist, talking very much about this same thing Mm -hmm. that he likes to take. Because when you hear something on the radio or your streaming service, a couple dozen people have had their hands on it. Right. And he likes to take it back to where it's just that original composition. Yeah. Right. And uh, it works as as a country tune. So my thought would be, how difficult would it be to, to, uh, so we have we have a lot of people online who are doing hip hop covers, right? Uh, who's doing the hairband covers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because and I, a lot of those heavy metal artists were classically trained, and I think this gets back to the previous accidental as well. When it comes to music in general, there's a lot of attention 
put on engaging the younger audiences, but there are adult, there are grown folk demographics that can be dug into mm. as well. When I'm thinking about transforming the field of Western classical music, I'm I'm doing my best to uh, spread my tentacles to aesthetics that are American and should be considered American classical that I don't always engage. I know there's folk music and country music out there. You know, uh, shout out to Dolly Parton. Uh, that song uh, we had on Triloquy a while ago, uh, Clear Blue Morning, uh, Light of the Clear Blue mm-hmm. Morning, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, I think John Rutter arranged that for choir. For no way, choir really? That, uh, Rutter Del's, did? Yeah, uh, somebody that uh, Dell's sister-in-law, the choir performed at her, the graduation when she got her master's, you know? Mm. So there, there we have the examples. We, we have Whitaker, the, maybe. Sure. We, we, we have the, 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 the little seedlings, but I think if we can dig more into that, Hmm. We can really talk about engaging the broadest audiences possible. You know, the young black kids, the older white folks, hmm. and, and and everybody else in between. But there has to be that effort. We we have to we have to cultivate these things and put some energy into making sure that we that we actually do it. Like Erilyn said, uh, her music is uh, connecting with people of all ages and backgrounds. There's a chance. Yeah. All right, well, um, let's go ahead and get into the, the main event. Oh, so, here we go. Last night, Chris Rock came to the stage to present an award and made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's hair. Um, as people have learned, as I have learned personally, she's suffering from alopecia, so mm-hmm. there's uh, hair loss involved. And along the way, I suppose she just decided to shave her head. Let's talk about this real quick from the male point of view, to, to, to quote the men from Men on Films, remember? Well, sure. <laughs> um, we can't speak from a woman's perspective, but I've heard you speak to the difference between, oh, one day I'll shave my head, whatever, and then getting to the point where it's time and mm-hmm. there are certain emotions mm-hmm. <laughs> connected to that. Yeah. Tell, tell me more. Tell me more about that. Well, I always said if it ever got to the point where my hair was thinning out or looks like it is now with the strange uh, balding pattern that I've got going on, I will own the baldness instead and I will cut it myself. And then that day comes Mm -hmm. and you're standing there with the clippers on and you've got the towel around your neck and you're going, oh, damn. Because you're you're standing there with the clippers and you're saying... Am I really? Am I really about to do this? You better be sure. You better be sure, because when you cut it down, now you're committed. Now you can't do like a reverse mohawk, right? You know, right? And go around and expect to be, you know, not to get looked at funny when you're out there in public. But for me, from from my from as a as a cis het middle aged man, yeah, it hit on levels of um, how I felt about myself outward appearance your virility is in there okay oh yeah. well, why why are you shaving but i found out after wearing it bald for a little bit i like the baldy beardy look mm-hmm. you know it was you know it's fine i've got a big head my poor mother i mean <laughs> it's, sure. It's, sure. I, I i probably oh my goodness so i understand the attachment that happens around it however the cultural chasm is the one that i can't but see that's the thing see so considering and affirming all of the emotions connected to a cishet man Mm -hmm. 
facing the reality of shaving his head, there is still societal acceptance of men with bald heads. You know, I got even, compliments even, on that. Right, sure. Exactly. That same structure is not there for women. So all of those mm-hmm. emotions are magnified. I understand. You know, in that moment. Okay. Um, let's talk about the joke itself. I don't have, I'm, I'm not passing any judgment on what Chris Rock said. I'm also not here to say, oh, well, a joke is a joke. And I remember when comedians weren't attacked X, Y, and Z. I, I don't, I don't think e- any of that is neither here nor there. But what I will say about it is I think people are getting tired of this expectation of just dealing with it. When people talk about, oh, everyone's getting so sensitive these days, mm-hmm. I think that people are getting empowered. People are deciding that they aren't just going to deal with something. You have been very generous uh, both on and off mic talking about how you had to deal with bullying in school. Mm -hmm. If you turned around and punched one of them in the face, that's not you instigating violence. That's your response to emotional violence that has already taken place. Am Mm -hmm. I wrong? No, you're not wrong. But I would still have been the one to have gotten called down to the the principal's office and I would have gotten the detention or the expulsion or whatever. So how do yeah. so how so how can we shift that? I feel like we need to affirm that violence isn't necessarily the answer but also that emotional violence is, is violence. violence and is as impactful mm. on people. Yeah, because I think you have people caring especially men I've had this conversation with my father recently. Mm-hmm. If we, if men would just open up and and say what has pissed them off and talk about it, maybe you wouldn't go and kick the dog upside down or, you know, punch a hole in the wall right. or otherwise be right. violent in whatever other way. I don't know for sure. I, I'm not exactly the best person to to answer that because you know, I've I've come to grips with my baldness. As a matter of fact, on coming up Friday, I have my appointment to get it taken care of. So I'm going to be going right back to my spring look. All I'm saying is, is that for people where this, uh, there are people where it carries even more weight. Yeah. You know, like yourself as a black man with dreads. Sure, sure. So I mean, I I, I think all of these things have to be considered. Uh, Scott, I honestly was not expecting people to be so emotional about mm-hmm. the the slap and you know a la Kanye West I'm a, I'm gonna let y'all finish but City Portier had the most legendary <laughs> slap of all time you know so I, right. I I didn't even think that this would be as big of a deal as it's turned into but here we are yeah. I just think that we can't attach you know getting back to our uh opening conversation about respectability politics I feel like we can't attach any sort of morality to what uh, Will Smith did, because I saw it as the effect of a cause. You know, you know, I think about causality all the time. What if we contextualize what happened, not as Will Smith doing something wrong or even Chris Rock doing something wrong, but when you put in all of these variables, all of these emotions and the historical narrative of Black women not being stood up for publicly in the moment, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just saying what happened was an effect of all of those things, and I don't think it's appropriate to uh, put any moral judgment, uh, certainly not on Will Smith, because 
we weren't in his shoes mm-hmm. and, and we don't know what we would do and we don't know what our emotions would have us do. Right. I saw people who were talking about how uh, it normalizes violence. See, I don't think so, and, but go ahead. Uh, yeah. And no, that was another comment that I, I had seen. Uh, also, one that I thought went far, but went a little bit too far, but was out there was that if he did that to Chris Rock, then you know he's probably doing that to Jada at home. And I don't what? think that, no. yeah, they were saying that, that he's probably violent in his own home. Uh, that way, and I don't necessarily draw that conclusion either. I'm gonna just I'm I'm gonna put an article here uh, from HT News. The title is "Aesthetic Violence and Massage Noir Against Jada Pinkett Smith." There is uh, an organization, a, a group of women uh, called Afrofeminine, and I want I want to read a quote from them because I think it's it's very uh, notable. Uh, they say here. Tell it like it is. You don't see black women as people worth defending. What Will Smith did is more than a slap in the face. He defended a black woman in public, something you would never do. They only talk about the slap, but not about the misogynistic and racist jokes of Chris Rock, which is not the first time that he makes them about Jada. So again, I have been saying I'm not censoring Will or Chris. I'm censoring the fact that there is a black woman who sits on a timeline of countless black women who just had to deal with it despite the emotional violence being put on them. So if her husband felt like he needed to get up and do something about it, so be it. I don't I don't I don't I don't have anything negative to say about that or, uh, or about him. I'm going to come out and say I think that uh, it's working for her. I, there's a picture of her here, and and I think it's lovely. Now, as of uh, 7 p.m. today, as we're recording this, Will Smith issued an apology. He said, I would like to publicly apologize uh, to Chris. I was out of line, and I was wrong. I'm, I'm embarrassed, and my actions were not indicative of the man I want to be. There is no place for violence in a world of love and kindness. Let me say this. He said there is no place for violence, Scott. We're hanging out somewhere. Maybe we're even we're at the Oscars. We're nominated for best podcast and we're sitting up there on the front row. And let's say somebody who's not afraid of the N word, maybe someone like Quentin Tarantino mm. <laughs> makes, What's gonna happen? makes some sort of joke that makes me feel away. Maybe he says some N word um, peripheral joke or makes some racial remark or, you know, do, does something that makes you feel away. On my behalf, if somebody is calling me a, a ninja, can I not expect you or anybody <laughs> to go do something about it? You know, when, when I hear people say violence under no circumstance, you know, well, there are circumstances, actually. Mm. You know, what if, what if I don't know, we, we, can, we can what if all day, but I don't like the idea that we're talking about this culture where there is should not be reaction to emotional violence. See, that that's always what I'm coming back to. It's not like the violence is being initiated by the person reacting to something that was being said, something offensive or whatever. It's, it's the, the result of something. What if he just said something like, be where I can find you? <laughs> I mean, that would... Would that... What, what, how would sure. that have been different? I think that would have been more respectable and more acceptable to more people. I don't, I don't, I'll I'll say this. I don't know if Jada Pinkett Smith was mad at him in the car ride home. It was probably, it was probably something else on the car ride home. And at the end of it all. (laughs) Go ahead. No, I'm just saying at the end of it all, you know, that's, that's who Will answers to. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yep. So anyway, this, this it's a nuanced conversation. I don't think it's a yes or no, good or bad conversation. I think that people that are turning it into a good or bad violence under no circumstances sort of conversation need to look at how re- respectability politics play a role in that because there is because there are circumstances a and b we can't consider the physical reaction the actual instigation it's like you know when we were uh here in the twin cities during 2020 when they were uh, burning everything down and and tearing stuff up my point was that they are not the instigators of this stuff if you want to be mad at someone be mad at the racist structures the police precincts all of these people who were the actual cause of these reactions that's how i approach this situation any energy toward nonviolence, this is unacceptable needs to be pointed at the person who initiated the violence. Even it, it being emotional violence, yes, that's still valid, though. Uh, we need to point it that way. That's really all I got um, on I wonder that, what so. I wonder what the next thing that's going to happen will be that, be I'm, that, that I'm not going to be phased by. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Chris Rock was there with the, to present the award for mm-hmm. uh, Best Documentary, and it ended up going to Questlove. And people are saying, oh, well, you know, Will Smith ruined that moment. Well, not for me, you know. So when you did they ruin it for you? So when people say uh, he ruined the moment, again, respectability politics, who are you thinking about that it was ruined for? Beyonce herself? She was grinning during all the mess. So <laughs> uh, I don't know because I didn't even know what award was being presented. Wasn't Chris the overall host or was he just giving one award? No, he was just doing that uh, one, oh, one, one okay. award as, as far as I know. But anyway, uh, I, I wanted to make sure that uh, I offered a shout out and some space to Quest Love's win because Summer of Soul, I think, represents that American music history that so many of us don't learn, but so many of us should learn. He's mm. talking about what was happening in Harlem uh, with uh, uh, the development of soul music. We were listening to some soul music uh, over over dinner mm-hmm. this evening, and you were talking about some of your memories. There are people who graduate with higher degrees in music, have doctorates in music, and cannot tell you who the uh, who are we listening to? Not Earth, Wind, and Fire, but um, the Stylistics or uh, the the Gladys Knight and the Pips or mm. or whoever you know all all of these uh, ensembles that should be normal in our mouths and in our discourse, even included in our programming as American classical music is so marginalized. So, And Questlove even spoke to that in his uh, acceptance speech. He, he wrote here, this is about marginalized people in Harlem that needed to heal from pain, you know? So from that pain is some great art and great mm. learning. So I, I guess, you know, the pain on Chris Rock's face, I hope he's learned something. You know, I hope he heals. <laughs> mm. I, I took a look at the uh, playlist, the soundtrack for uh, Summer of Soul. And one of the tunes there is, you know, a well-known classic, My Girl by The Temptations. Nice. You, know, you know that tune, of, of course. course, right? Sh- uh, shout out and congratulations to Quest Love. Here's a bit of that My Girl by The Temptations to move us into the second movement.
what can make me feel this way? I mean, mm. <laughs> my from Will Smith's perspective, my girl made him feel a way. You know, there's a, a royal, I've talked about it before on Triloquy, I'm sure, but there's a royal philharmonic recording of my girl that's really great. I used to like yeah. to, I used to like to play it during uh, uh, Black History Month, but you know, Valentine's Day is in February. Sure. So digging into that intersection, like I said. Once an hour, at the very least, some tune that people know. When I was talking about um, what, what are the songs that folks in an older demographic will hear and say, oh, yeah, I'm talking about stuff like that. You know, playing mm -hmm. the Royal Philharmonics or, you know, some black ensembles, uh, My Girl or whatever. Just meeting people where, where they are. Mm. It's, it's, it's so important. But uh, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to take the second ending by celebrating a recording or a piece of music that we've been listening to all, all week. What you got uh, for us? You taking us down the soul route or elsewhere? No, actually, uh, we're going to go down the operatic route because okay. um, I was on a vocalese kick recently. I listened to different composers' vocalese, but the the daddy of all of them for me is the Rachmaninoff. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> excuse me, soprano voice and piano, and I I show I, I think it shows um, the the power of the music over just the word because the soloist is only singing ah, mm -hmm. but going through such a range uh, with um, the melody that Rachmaninoff wrote um, that's my favorite. And Leontine Price was the one singing it when it when it came across. Yeah, and I thought that it would be uh, a good idea to feature her as we are uh, wrapping up uh, Women's History Month because talk about historic. She had a decades long career with the Metropolitan Opera. Yeah, she uh, has nineteen Grammys. Look at that. And um, when when she first started getting into music, you know Jim Crow was still uh, going on. Yeah, black and, woman for folks right, who don't know. Right, Leontine is a is a, a black soprano, and uh, she th she just thought that her line of work was going to be teaching that that was it. Mm -hmm. She was going to have to teach music. Guess who who encouraged her to go and be a vocalist? Who's that? Paul Robeson. Wow. Yeah. Paul Robeson was the man to to give her the encouragement that she needed to go on and to have that long of a career in the Met. Yeah. That's not nothing as a black woman. Right. Today that that would be a, a feat. And that you know, she was a, like a Verdi specialist. Yeah. You know, in addition to Mozart and, and Wagner and the other things, but her um uh her Verdi was what she was known for. However, I don't I don't want to bring in the vocalese this week. I wanted to bring in her performance uh, from Rusalka, Song of the Moon by Antonin Dvorak. Think about all of the black women whose names we'll never know, whose voices we'll never hear, who could also be doing that. This mm. Leontine, Leontine Price was almost a woman whose name and voice 
we didn't know, at mm-hmm. least not in in mm-hmm. this capacity. You know, again, shout out to Paul Ropes and sticking up for black women and encouraging black women. It's very important to note just how the how by the skin of people's teeth we get these artists who who were able to traverse those challenges and and really move forward anyone in the world of opera most people in the world of western classical music know and and celebrate uh, the name Leontine Price um and for good reason for good reason we uh we missed her 95th birthday she turned 95 on February 10th so a belated happy birthday to Leontine Price and I know Titus Underwood is going to at me here, but I have to point out she was the first black woman to achieve international fame in opera. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Leontine Price, an important vital part of women's history. Well, I'm going to go a, a little bit more contemporary and talk about a black woman who's out here in the new music scene. First of all, I'll say that uh, right now, uh, at least last week, uh, the Big Ears Festival was going on mm-hmm. in Knoxville. And I started to look at the lineup and was upset that I couldn't make it because there were some real heavy hitters there this year. If you don't know what the Big Ears Festival is, basically it's a, a festival that takes new music, you know, new music TM. I, I feel like we need to do something with, with that title <laughs> as well, but contemporary uh, classical and uh, however you want to define that and just puts it all at one place. And among the performers was Natalie Joachim. So we've talked about flutronics mm-hmm. on Triloquy before, you know, so that's a flute duo of flutes. Um, vocals and electronics uh, featuring Natalie Joachim and Allison Loggins-Hull, who I've had on a trilogy before. But uh, Natalie Joachim, in her own regard, um, is an incredible composer uh, and musician. So uh, thinking about her performing down uh, at Big Gears, I went back and uh, was revisiting some of the older recordings. And I found one that she did a while back with the Spectral Quartet. I'm going to read a little bit about it just from the liner notes here. It says, Haitian-American composer, flutist, and vocalist Natalie Joachim uh, released her uh, debut solo album, Femme Daiti, on August 30th, 2019. That translates to Women of Haiti. And it just highlights the different aesthetics and history of Haitian music, Haitian classical music, and the different aesthetics therein. It says here, a unique mixture of classical music, electronic programming, hip-hop, neo-rhythm, and blues, and folkloric elements rooted in the Haitian cultural heritage. Uh, The track I want to share from that album is called Papa Loco. And it Hmm. it just really just highlights how beautiful Natalie's voice is and how expanding this idea of classical music will really expose us to more things if we just let it. Papa Loco I hate that I wasn't really familiar with 
of this music. I guess this piece of music in particular didn't exist back when I was working in radio down in Knoxville. This came out in 2019. But when we think about Haitian music specifically, we don't have all of that many examples to draw from. And the ones we do really fall in line with more of that uh, traditional Western classical aesthetic, which is fine. But I love that we have the opportunity with this piece of music, not only to celebrate a renewed idea and aesthetic connected to that phrase classical music, but one that uh, highlights the culture of a people genuinely, mm. you know, that that is really rooted in and uh, what what they would recognize as their own music and their own aesthetics. It's, it's really beautiful stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think I talked about it when I flew to New York to go see Fire Shut Up In My Bones. I watched a live uh, Flutronics performance and I had actually never heard Natalie sing. So getting to hear her sing for the first time live like that just really opened my eyes to the diversity of talent that she holds as an artist. And hearing her voice here is just like a, a bright sunny day. It, mm. it just I, I can't help but to have a smile on my face when listening to it. When you were on the air in Knoxville, what was the reaction whenever you would put a track like that on? What sort of feedback would you get? Oh, Knoxville has because of the Big Ears Festival. I felt like the ears spread a little wider than in in some markets. So I think anything is going to get some critique and and some complaint. But oh. music like this definitely was accepted you know it, it definitely requires some framing and some uh context but i think this is an example of how we can move forward how mm. we can shift away from who do you say corelli I, I would rather listen to this than corelli and i feel like that has to be true for a number of listeners out there you know <laughs> so shout out to natalie joachim if you're unfamiliar uh with this uh project uh, i'll have a, a link in the description a really incredible album featuring natalie joachim and the spectral Quartet. All right, we're moving into the third movement. Uh, Jamie Ali Law returns for part two of our conversation. For folks who weren't with us last week, Jamie Ali Law um, is a, a soprano, an operatic singer, um, an activist, and a member of the Leadership Council of the Black Opera Alliance, who has been doing a lot of incredible work toward decolonizing opera spaces, uh, particularly. Where we pick up uh, this week with the conversation, uh, Jamie speaks to call-out culture and this idea of willful ignorance within classical structures for the sake of maintaining um, you know, uh, uh, a polished appearance, you know, being above all of the drama, you know, respectability politics, I think mm. can be applied to that. So that's where we get uh, the conversation started um, and, you know, talk about steps forward specifically in opera and across the broader classical ecosystem. To get us into the conversation, I want to feature a performance of another member of the Triloquy family and a member of the Black Opera Alliance, Rayanne Bryce Davis. This is a, a her performance of a tune by Maria Thompson Corley called I'm Not an Angry Black Woman. Let's take a listen to get into my conversation with the one and only Jamie Ali Law. Thank you. 
yeah, no, that's that's definitely been a part of the mask, you know, of the of the high arts. You know, yeah. we're above <laughs> all of this right. because we're so high. And and really what it is is it's 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 a detachment and um and a disengagement and a willful ignorance. And because it's so ingrained in the culture, the calling out, the jostling is, mm-hmm. it's not even optional. It's, it's, it's a requirement because we're so high up <laughs> that we, we won't see it. We won't hear it unless it is loud and in your face. Right. And that is undesirable, especially if you if you're on the other side of being called out, right? No, nope, it's it's not it's not pleasant, right? But it doesn't get to that point until all of the other ways are not heard. You said that we didn't have to be here calling y'all out. <laughs> this is not my choice. Okay, this is not my choice of how to spend my time, right. my energy, my attention. And that's, right? and that's the part. It's like, it's not like we wake up every morning and want to be involved in some negative energy in that way. We want what's best for the industry because that's best for us. But at the same time, what needs to be done needs to be done. And 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 we have to say, even with the quote unquote call out, all it is is stating truths, is mm-hmm. stating facts. Right. So if we look at the call outs that the Black Opera Alliance has done, we've had our open letters that we have written to certain institutions that whose bad behavior um, made it public. Right. And so we've we've written open letters addressing those issues. Um, and then we have our our infamous um, card system where to go with the pledges that we sent out, um, the companies that have signed the pledges, we give a green card to indicate that they have signed. The companies that have refused to sign either in um, word you know, they've said sure. we will not sign or in um, explicit deed, um, red card activities, mm-hmm. if you will, um, have been given red cards. And actually, you will, at, at this point, there are very few. And then there are yellow cards. Those are the companies that are in the process of crafting a pledge to sign. And so even with that system, we are simply stating these are people who have signed. These are people who have said they will not sign or who will not sign. And these are, or and I say people, organizations, mm-hmm. and these are companies that are in the process. They have not signed yet. They are in the process. And we, we had a point where we were giving yellow cards to companies that hadn't said no, but hadn't signed. Mm -hmm. And 
many of the companies that were in that category were company companies that simply hadn't responded. Right. And when it got past a certain point of what we deemed as reasonable, right? Like over a year, um, we announced that too. And, and announced that we would have to take that as an action or inaction to demonstrate that they would not sign the pledge because we had not received the communication and we had not received the pledge despite attempts to reach out. And love it or hate it, it wasn't until we started to make public where these things stood that we would hear from certain companies. We sent the pledges out in, I believe it was September of 2020. Mm -hmm. And there were some companies we didn't hear from until October of 2021. And so for an organization that is serious about equity work and, and the transforming of the industry, it would be ill-effective for us to not address, you know, the, 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 the silence because yeah. silence is silence is a declaration too. Exactly. And yes means yes. Yes. Yes means yes. Silence for long enough, especially means no. Right. And, and it is very polarizing intentionally, right. To, to, put these things under a light because as we know with white supremacist culture, one of the tactics is willful ignorance. Right. Right. You know, or the kicking the can down the road, or oh, we can't do this now, later, 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 you know, all of these are some variation of that. And, you know, I, I get it. Cause again, we're in an industry that is used to regulating itself or not. And so to have, an organization arise seemingly out of nowhere to, to, to one who's willfully ignorant, right? Like, what, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, you know, this well, has been brewing you. for some time. <laughs> it's been brewing for quite some time. Right. Um, you know, and, and we did hear some of that too. It's like, well, who are, who are they? You know, why do we have to, it's like, well, actually we are a, a collective of over a thousand members globally who said in these very basic eight tenets, this is what equity looks like. And you have to interact with that. And you have to know that um, not interacting with that is interacting with it. Right. And we just going to call it what it is. Yeah. And, yeah. and you can be mad or not. I'm not doing this for you. And that's the thing that we have that people have to understand. When we ask that question, who is this for? Yeah. Right. This work that we're doing is for black people and is for the industry. And it's an invitation for the 
purveyors and the centers, the existing structures to partner with us as we build out. Um, and it's also a declaration that the way things have has been going will no longer be accepted. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you, you spoke to uh, white supremacist tactics. So I'm going to ask you this, you know, and, and this podcast is called Triloquy. So, you know, th- th- this is one of those conversations, at least in my opinion, for every opera company of uh, orchestra, I mean, we could even take it away from opera, but for every arts institution that uh, alleges to be doing the right thing, despite their proximity to organizations like the Black Opera Alliance, there are black people within those institutions that they platform toward making that point, appeasing one or appeasing some is often- Tokenization. Exactly, used as as a pass. Before you even start talking, I'm, I'm going to say that I genuinely have no one in mind. It seems like one of the barriers to this conversation when we talk about tokenization is certain people thinking that the conversation is always linked to disdain for a particular person or to specific people. I feel like that is one of those white supremacist constructs. We can't even talk about the tool and the tactic of tokenization without being gaslit into and, and into people saying, oh, well, you just have a problem with such and such who works such and such. And that's why you're saying that. So anyway, with all of that being said, what is your response to dealing with tokenization, especially considering that some of us will take that check from this organization and make it harder for the rest of us trying to call out the organizations that allege to be equitable, but aren't in actuality. It's interesting. I was um, thinking the other day, because I've been, you know, of course, aware of the different initiatives that have uh, sprung up since 2020. The fellowships, and, the all of these things, you know. Oh yeah, the fellowships, the new, the crafting of new positions, the um, advisory boards, the the new works. Almost like all know. this money came out of nowhere, huh? Out of nowhere, <laughs> all this money in black folks. It's like, dang, we didn't have none of it before 2020, but now, right. and and to. To that end, I've been observing and celebrating, right? Because like I said in the beginning, if you want to be in a position, sis, bruh, sib, I want you there, mm-hmm. right? So celebrating and noting that regardless of your opinion of the Black Opera Alliance, and their tactics, the Black Opera Alliance and their tactics have moved this industry in this direction. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone within and even folks outside of will, will have to acknowledge that if they're being honest. And the Black Opera Alliance is for all Black people in the industry, whether you like us or not, right? right, Or participate or not. It's the work, the work that the organization does is 
to bring equity. In fact, I'll go even as far as to say that the work that the Black Opera Alliance does benefits everybody in the industry. Right. Right. Our focus is Black folks, and we keep that intention specifically because we know that when we don't, then Black folks get pushed to the side. Right. But when and, and not we, and not to sideline your point, but j- just to highlight that point, if someone knows what to do with our hair and our skin tone in the hair and makeup room, they know what to do with yours as well, person who is not black. Precisely. You know? But anyway. Precisely. Precisely. And so, and to that point, they'll know what to do with your black tresses, even if you don't like the way that the Black Opera Alliance. Right. You are going to benefit. Right. You will benefit. And so I've been observing all of the benefit that is happening. And I and I often use this correlation. You know, there were folks who didn't start messing with Martin until Malcolm became a real problem. Sure. And then it was like, please. Ooh, and that's the story. Nonviolent. That's the story. Please nonviolence, right? <laughs> because they calling us out. They pulling out red cards. Mm-hmm. We need to feel safe and aligned. And we need to show that we're aligned. Yeah. Right? And when we have Malcolm, Martin, and everyone in between, we have potential to have all of the bases covered. So you don't have to like the Black Opera Alliance's approach and you don't even have to be a part of it. I personally, I speak for my own self, I celebrate the activism that takes place even outside of the Black Opera Alliance. But what we cannot have (laughs) is the intentional attempts at sabotage, at sabotaging any efforts for Black people. Yeah. Genuinely for Black people. And so if it's for Black people and I didn't come up with it, thank you. Yeah. Because listen, and if it can benefit me, thank you. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be Black Opera Alliance. But it's it's dangerous when people position themselves to to be weaponized against Black people. Um, and the way that tokenization works. It's not always a ready choice, right? It's and often it's not. It's it's yeah. often not like somebody saying like, "Hey, I will be your one." Yeah. <laughs> it's oftentimes <laughs> not that. They exist, but go on. <laughs> they, they exist. <laughs> yeah, listen. There there are some. Okay, there are some. But most of the time, it is a black person who is more than qualified and who wants to do the thing that they're qualified to do. Mm -hmm. And they're brought in under cover of equity and 
their gifts and what they have to offer. And then they find that they become the voice and the face for all things black. And oftentimes nothing else. Right. Right. And so oftentimes we find ourselves in positions that we don't realize that we've been tokenized until we're in it. And I'll say this with the Black Opera Alliance, that's part of our job too, is we exist again to hold organizations accountable and to offer support for our members. So that if you find that you go into a space under a certain pretense and the culture to sustain that does not exist. We're not trying to have black folks out here in these silos the way we were before by ourselves having to fight for basic human decency. We exist because we want our members to know that if you out here in these streets and folk acting up, let us know. Let the, organize, let the organization show up on your behalf so that it's not just this lone voice being oppressed, silenced, dismissed, gaslit, appeased, fired, retaliated against, but that the organization can show up and be in community with because to be in community with includes accountability. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and again, for, for an industry that is not used to operating in this way, structurally, we offer that feedback to help facilitate the transformation because it, though it is unfair work for us, right? Because it's like, I got to be black and fix stuff. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, right. it's unfair, right. but it, it it's, it's essential because if we don't do it, it won't get done. And so for the black folks, wherever you stand with the Black Opera Alliance, and I'll say this too, add your voice. Yeah. Black, because black even is with, diverse. So you black know. is diverse. And within the organization, we certainly hear diverse voices. And so it is welcome. But if you're not, if you're not ready to come in, know that the work that is being done covers you too. And we just ask, <laughs> you know, just get off the tracks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> get off the tracks. Cause <laughs> yeah. we're gonna keep going, you yeah. know, and we and we're not, we're not against black people um but we're for equity and the good of black people so as we continue to try to connect the internal work to the external work which is one day seeing an audience that not only has us on stage but us in the audience see we forget mm -hmm. about that part of the conversation mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes so um let, let's pretend that we have created some ecosystem where it is very common to see an all-black production of tosca or don giovanni or the magic flute or or uh, madam butterfly all, all of these uh, canonical operas 
is that enough to get the black folks to watch us do those things? What do you think is the next step beyond getting black people in the spaces in a perf- on, on the performance side of the thing? How do we connect this work to the audience? Well, I, I will say this. Oftentimes, having black folks in the show is enough to pique interest. Now, <laughs> when black With folks get there, okay, <laughs> when they get in the audience, depending upon what and who they're met with that can determine whether they come back. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we'll see this oftentimes with, you know, our, our favorite controversy, Porgy and Bess, right. Y'all's favorite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> A lot of black folks, right? A lot of local black folks, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. So what happens? I seen it in Atlanta. Folks, the church buses will take, they will be filled, honey. They will go to Come brunch. Come on, church van. Come on. <laughs> they will go to brunch, and then they will pull up at the theater, mm-hmm. look and fly, and ready to see the people who are in the church choir on the stage, right? Yeah. And then you won't see them again for the rest of the season. Why? Because they people ain't on the stage. Right. This this show ain't got nothing to do with me. Why would I come? What is this? Right. Or if they do happen to venture to one of those canonized works that you mentioned. Oftentimes, and I'll tell, and I'll be real, this has been my experience, and I'm on the stage more often than I'm in the audience. Mm-hmm. But I've been in the audience and have felt, you don't just see the looks, you feel them. Yeah. You know, that are at best curiosity, but more often than folks would want to admit are looks of disdain what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. Right. And this policing, you know, everybody, everybody become neighborhood watch when there's some black folks in the audience. Listen, (laughs) (laughs) listen. It's like, you look, looking, make sure I don't clap out of turn. Yeah. Make sure I don't, you know, say nothing at the stage. Yeah. And it's like, listen, if I feel it, this, and this is me just because I have developed my level of comfort. If I feel it, I'm going to say, you better sing. Listen. <laughs> and listen, I'm going to tell y'all right now, listen, and if y'all ever come to something with me in it, Jamie Law, I want you to <laughs> let me know if I'm singing, okay? Uh-huh. Yep. The way that we do. But in the culture of opera and classical music, there's a certain way of being. And that can often clash with the culture of black folks enjoying art. And so that's gotta change. And we've always treated it as though it's everybody else's job to figure out this opera culture and to comply. Yeah. And we gotta let that go. We gotta let that go because I'll tell you right now, I'm not gonna be asking my people Anymore, I'm not going to be asking them to come and leave themselves at home. Right. In order to see me on the stage. I'm going to say, y'all better roll through. Mm-hmm. Y'all better shout out my name. 
<laughs> right. Whenever they want to clap, whenever they want to shout, they have the right to do Stand that. Stand up. Just despite the conventions. It. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Laugh, it's, not, it's funny. <laughs> and it's not like, you know, black folks, we don't have nothing to wear. Listen. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I've, I've never had a black person ask me, well, what should I wear? Because we're we're used to putting on the hat. I, I, I often say I'm liberated. I don't wear church socks. But we <laughs> but we all have, you know, anyway, my, my point is we can be in the space and we can support each other. But we have to think yeah. about the environment that is being right. uh, perpetuated based on who we're centering in our programming and, mm -hmm. and in the way we market and, uh, and those things. I have one more question for you, but before yes. I ask you, how can folks um, learn how to book you, how to uh, reach out to you to check out upcoming performances? How can they contact Jamie Ali Law? Well, I'm so glad you asked. So I'm on uh, social media platforms. My uh, handle is Sang Miss Jamie. So that's <laughs> S-A-N-G-M-S. -S. Jamie is spelled J-A-Y-M-E. So you can find me on Facebook, Instagram. You can find me on Twitter. I don't know how much I'll be doing, but I'm getting better over there. Um, my website is www.jamie-alilaw.com. And you can send emails to info at jamie-alilaw.com. Yeah, thank you. So beyond the constructs of race that surround us, opera is one of these industries that makes a lot of people feel marginalized, like like we were just saying, they don't have anything to wear or they're not going to understand what's uh, going on on the stage. What What's your pitch to all of the uninitiated um, as far as returning to opera? You return to opera as a performer. How can you, uh, what, what are your words to the folks who uh, might consider returning to opera as a patron? Go to something you believe in. Make these, make these people earn your engagement. Honestly, I mean, I, I I see it as another point of leverage. You know, the 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 work that we just did, Garrett. There was uh, this woman, Miss Sylvia, was a patron. Uh, a very she and her husband were very integral um, into the the creation and the presentation of the work. Black woman, I said, I saw her, I saw her silver hair laid and I was like, she could be my grandma and I love her. And she was a sponsor. She paid, she's a patron of opera, of this opera. And oftentimes there's again, this very uh, racist narrative of all the reasons why you can't do operas um, that would represent more stories, more diverse stories is because it's so patron dependent. Okay. Like, again, I'm in Atlanta, mm -hmm. you know, where <laughs> Ryan Coogler, right, was just- right detained for trying to take $12,000 out of his own account, yeah. right? So we're used to Black people having money. We're not used to Black people being patrons of opera. Why? Because it ain't got nothing to do with them. Why? Because the leaders assume that Black people don't have money or won't give money to opera. 
And I say this, Black people will most certainly give money to opera if you're telling something that they want to pay for. Oh, yeah. So whether that be in the purchase of tickets or sponsoring productions, uh, it's opera really has to denounce this way of being that says we are what everyone needs. You must come to us. <laughs> opera needs to humble itself mm-hmm. <laughs> and say, <laughs> uh, Miss, ma'am, Mr. Sir, uh, they, uh, we need money. You have it. <laughs> you know, these are the stories we're wanting to tell. So opera needs to get brave and bold um, and start telling real stories and then start to seek those sponsors who will who will sponsor those stories um and and listen i'm not i'm gonna be i'm not rallying for nobody to come back to opera i am rallying for opera to come to people so i say this when opera shows up on your radar get curious about it sure but I'm not telling nobody to go to opera uh, when if opera is not trying to come to you. That was Karen Slack there in the opening to a work by Peter Hilliard called The Work. I wanted to uh, include that tune because there is a lot of work involved as we were speaking to earlier in engaging these audiences in more genuine ways, going and cultivating the recordings, putting together the programming, really applying equity in the conversation of engaging more people. Um, And just as another side note, uh, the performance that we just heard and the one uh, uh, that got us into my conversation with Jamie, those come from the Virtual Black Opera Alliance Gala. So I'll have links to that in the description. Scott, one of the points of the gala was just to showcase the fact that among the Black Opera Alliance membership is so much talent that the excuse of, well, where are all the black singers can't really viably be used mm. because the talent is out here. There's a reason why these black singers aren't interested in engaging certain programs, certain institutions, and the institutions need to ask that question instead of where is all the black talent? You know, we, we, we hear a black opera singer and consider them so rare 
you know, something that you don't see every day, which mm. you you may not see it every day, but there's a reason for that. But that does not mean that the talent does not exist. Uh, one of the uh, last points that Jamie was making in our conversation was that she isn't asking anyone to go seek out opera or to seek out art spaces. We need to put the pressure on the institutions toward engaging the actual people. And then maybe if you feel uh, engaged or included or, or seen, you can bring your, you can be brought in that way. But Jamie was encouraging people to not feel like the work, the burden is on them to go seek out these institutions. What's your response to that? You don't work in opera, you work in, in classical radio, but what's your response to the idea that people should not be seeking you out? It's your job to to pull folks in. Well, it, it, it's probably going to hurt the struggling arts right. institutions. Um, you you might hang on to the the membership that you have if if you don't engage the new crowd. Mm-hmm. But how long will you have that audience? I guess until they die. I guess until they're That's gone. That's sort of what I was alluding to. But I think that people can get there without being led by the hand. You, I'm, but I'm sure you can see how. Some may consider it counterproductive to see professionals within arts fields telling people who haven't been engaged by the arts, no, don't go searching out for for that. If if it makes it to you, it makes it to you. Good for good for them for actually creating programming that makes it to you. If it doesn't, oh well, you'll be fine. Hmm. I'm sure some people can contextualize that as counterproductive. I think we're just conditioned to try to convince people of this inherent value of all of this music instead of putting the onus on the institutions who aren't reaching these new diverse communities. Mm. I see what you're saying, but um, I don't know what the answer is. I know that so many of them are trying to hang on to what they've got Mm -hmm. and that the ratio of the things that they do to try to attract the new you know, they're walking a balance of not offending the ones that are already there and trying to bring the new ones in. And and I don't know, time is going to tell whether or not that's an approach that works. Time will tell indeed. So shout out and thank you to Jamie Ali Law for joining me for not one, but two weeks. I'll offer the same advice. Don't go searching out for ways to be engaged by these orchestras, these opera houses, even these classical radio stations. Let's put the onus on them and make sure they are reaching out to us, creating programming that genuinely engages us instead of us trying to find some inherent value within these art forms that at the end of the day is rooted in that same respectability politics we've been talking about this whole opus. I'm going to spend the fourth movement talking a little bit about a, a political convention <laughs> that I went to and, and some issues therein mm. and how I've connected that to the arts, at least in my mind. Um, and to get us there, I want to offer a shout out to Maria Issa, who got the uh, DFL, the local Democratic uh, Party endorsement for uh, state representative. So really happy to see an artist assuming that position. We're, uh, we're, we're looking forward to uh, big things from Maria. This is a track of her. See, this is, this is you're about to listen to some music. This is who they have to deal with up on Capitol Hill uh, in, uh, in, in the state of Minnesota now. This is a Maria, a Maria Issa track called Low Rider Mommies. Let's take a listen to get us into our fourth movement. Who you call? a bitch me roll a beam of Benz Bentley see me flow hard on the block they commend me Facebook befriend me tweet and you see I'm from Venus not Mars Poppy that's who sent me battle drop your mic cause you won't condemn me Twin Cities where I'm from Boricua would I bleed
read. Sota Rico this year, worldwide overseas. Miss Redhead trick, you didn't make this, please. Came from my mama, East Harlem, NYC. Me gente living green, now my cover magazines. Coming brand new like my weekly guest jeans. Ain't nada like a hound dog, Elvis Presley. Come and drop a pound off, I'll smoke this. Scene. I don't know. I'm 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 proud for, for that to be my representative for the state of Minnesota. Mm. <laughs> I wonder who mine is. And, that, and, that's a, and that's a great way to get us into this fourth <laughs> movement. Okay, so over the weekend, Dell and I participated in uh, the convention where these candidates would, you know, we would vote as delegates for these candidates to get the official endorsement of the party so that they can move forward towards getting elected in and all of that stuff uh, coming up in the fall. I feel like so much of that process taught me why we see the type of representation or don't see the type of representation uh, that's actually going to impact some of the change. So first and foremost, you have to have uh, the privilege. And I, and I think Minnesota and Iowa are the only two states that caucus still, you know, but hmm. you have to have the full day. Dell and I were there from uh, 8 a.m. to about five in the afternoon in a high school gym. It's noisy. It's hectic. There's somebody on the stage, a chair, you know, calling out for certain things to be voted on and X, Y, and Z. And it's just so convoluted that I feel like that is something that folks take advantage of when it comes to assuming office and being a part of these political systems. Is there anything that you can tell me about the process of caucus toward getting endorsements by the local uh, parties for us to be able to vote for them on the ballot. Is there anything that you know about that process? No. Nope. And I think that's by design. Back during the presidential elections, you used to talk a lot about, you know, you want to vote for a serious candidate. And I know that local politics and national politics are a little different, but I can't help but to feel like if there is such a convoluted, complicated way to get on the ballot we have to think about some of the privileges and some of the barriers that keep certain people out of the process altogether, which at the end of the day doesn't actually offer a real choice for mm. people like me. There was a lot of representation there um, of Mexican and, and Puerto Rican and other um, uh, members of the Latinidad. There was a huge bit of representation there from uh, uh, Somali and East African communities, hmm. um, but hardly any Black Americans, any Afro-Americans. And this is what I'm attributing to that. This is where my mind is going. For multiple generations, it has been proven to Black communities that combing our hair, getting cleaned up, putting on a suit, and going through this process, how at the end of the day, not only has that not saved us, but that cannot save us because the system isn't built to keep us in or even make sure we're included. It's built to keep us out. So if you have this happening uh, to Black uh, black Americans, specifically uh, communities over the generations, eventually folks are going to say, you know what, I got to go to work or I'm not dealing with that or none of this is going to save us. There are a lot of people who are critical of, of Barack Obama saying that those respectability politics are what got him there and not his love and dedication to liberating mm. black people. So with all of that in mind, 
I feel like when you take communities that are newer, <laughs> relatively newer to this American experience, uh, American experiment, you take someone from the Somali community, um, put him in a Western suit, you know, cut his hair, take some of the um, East African women, take them out of hijab, put them in the respectable pants suit. There is some hope that that will offer some change to certain communities. But I feel like that in itself is proof that the system is built to fortify itself. People lean on the fact that, oh, we had such a diverse turnout and we have uh, uh, people getting the endorsement from diverse communities and different backgrounds. But at the end of the day, we have seen where that leads, at least where that leads to people uh, who are the uh, descendants of slaves. And I don't mean to be parochial about it as much as I mean to say, it's hard for me to see how the political process can help us. Now, tying that to the arts, this whole construction of classical music, specifically orchestral music, in my perspective at this point, again, as fueled by my experience at this political caucus event, that maybe, maybe Scott, maybe the classical structures can't be decolonized in the way that they exist. Maybe an orchestra with this many violins and this many uh, winds or whatever, that requires an in-group and an out-group. So mm. maybe we need to just do something completely different. I was I was really struggling. You know, I, I was deep in my feelings like, wow, am, am I just wasting my time? Am I, you know, are, are we, will we mm. never be able to switch this around? I did some chanting, I did some meditation and I'm, I'm back on the horse, but... I think that we need to think about more of these concepts in that way. Think about why you don't know who your local representative is, why most people don't know anything about the caucus process, what we have learned from generations of Black people who haven't actually benefited in a systemic way from the respectability politics of put on the suit, speak in this way, sit down and don't get on stage and smack the shit out of somebody who just dis disrespected your wife. We see how that has not benefited us in a systemic way. How can we inspire thought? And this is a question for you, Scott. How do you think we can inspire thought toward thinking all the way outside of the box? It's not about infusing more people of color into the political structures, into the classical structures. It's about renewing, dismantling, and rebuilding the structures themselves. Do you think it's still a worthy cause to try to infuse people of color into the existing structures, or are you more on the side of rebuilding, or is it somewhere in between for you? For me, it's somewhere in between, but you have to understand that I'm I'm working from my perspective. Right. And I see and I respect yours, and mine is different, and I have to operate that way. Mm. So when it comes to somewhere in between, renewing structures like... New, we've, new, we, new types of music, or what? What, what do you think? Sure, no, I'm we've curious. we've we've used the analogy before, where you said the whole thing needs to come down, right? And I've said the bones are good, hmm. so we need to take it down to the studs. Is my point? And I know that you want to go all the way down to the ground and rebuild, but right. I, I'm I'm still I'm still of an opinion that the bones are good. I hear you, Scott. When you talk about the bones are fine, I'm I'm not there. 
and I'm willing to be convinced that the bones are fine, but I have to be convinced that the bones are fine. I feel like orchestral music and our current conception of what is classical was not built to unify. It was built to keep separate. It was built to say, hey, you are worthy of this art music that we deem to be the greatest. And we create barriers by cost, by what uh, we believe people should wear into these spaces. And me putting on my Downton Abbey uniform and sitting on stage and playing bassoon doesn't actually change that structure. It fortifies the structure Mm. for the people at those gates to say, what are you talking about? There are black people here. There, there are diverse people here. I think we need to to tear it all down because it wasn't, again, it wasn't built to affirm all of us. It was built for there to be an in crowd and an out crowd. We will not and cannot be united until we dismantle, in my opinion, dismantle the paradigm of classical music and build something completely new, build something that we have never seen before. We've never seen true unity <laughs> Certainly not in the United States. So that means for something we have never seen, we have to build something that we have never seen, something that we have to conceive right now, something anew for our time and for the next generations. I'll I'll pull on that yarn some more over the over the week. But until then, thank y'all for listening to us rant. Um, be careful who's a significant other you're saying something about because you might take a hand to the face, right or wrong. You might take a hand to the face. So all of that. Um, And thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.